Welcome to Thoughts on the Wheel, a podcast where we will spend far too much time thinking out loud about Robert Jordan's The Wheel of Time. I'm James Matice. And I'm David Arnold. We invite you to join our exploration of the intricate weaves and tangled webs of our favorite 30-pound fantasy series. We'll follow the threads of Jordan's story and pull out what you may not have noticed lurking just in the subtext. Our task is to stitch together the ethics, politics, psychology, societal norms, and we'll bring decision-making that woven together create a multi-hued tapestry of humanity against the looming shadow of apocalypse. If Book One Tom is interesting, it's not a character I've really seen before, and you have the traveling minstrel type, but he definitely was way more competent in everything that a traveling minstrel normally would be. And you see him with the throwing knives and how easy he is to charm and talk to people that it's like, okay, there's more to this guy. Uh, and then you have his relationship with you know, Rand and Matt specifically. And they mentioned that he has a nephew of who was about their age, had ran into some to die trouble. And it's obvious that he has lived a eventful life and is there as a counterpoint to Moraine for the boys. Uh, but otherwise, I, I don't know. He was kind of an enigma in the first book. How about you? So I don't know how much of the show has sort of altered my view of him. What I remember thinking when I was reading it, he was sort of a guy in the last prime of his life who was excessively skilled at a lot of things and knew a lot about the world. He had been doing this for a long time and was punching way below his weight coming to Emmons Field. I didn't know why he was in Emmons Field. Uh, and then when he starts teaching the boys music and how to play for their supper, I thought that was a really important part of the development because a lot of... Uh, a lot of fantasy novels would just skip over anything like that and just like have them, oh, they get in a wagon and they go to, you know, the next plot event. But the journey that they make with Tom's stuff um, is very character forming, I think, for the boys. So I thought about him as this mentor figure who took them as... Uh, potential replacements for his nephew when he he might know that one of them can channel or something like that. I can't even remember whether he knew what was going on with them. Um, he assumed that that was the trouble they were in because there was an Aes Sedai in the mix and basically assumed that Maureen would not have any use for the boys unless one of them could channel and that she was just trying to figure out which one of them it was. Uh, but yeah, the fact that he's willing to extend a hand to help them out with the suspicion that one of them will probably be able to channel and he doesn't know which one it is and he's still just willing to help them all. He's one of the only people we see in the first book who is like, oh, hey, potentially a man who can channel. Instead of running in terror, let me help. Uh, but yeah, as, as you said with the mentor figure, it is interesting because he plays a counterpoint to Moraine for that, the first book, whereas Moraine is taking on the mentoring role to Egwene and you know, whatever her relationship is with Nynaeve. Um, the only mentors the boys had to look up to is either Tom or Lan. And with Lan being Moraine's warder, they know that anything you say to Lan will get back to Moraine. So Tom is the non-Aes Sedai counterpoint they have. Lan is more the judgmental uncle kind to Rand, whereas Tom really steps into the... He sort of reminded me of a more worldly, more artistic Tam. I can see it. Um, 
it's one of those if Tam had been along instead of Tom, that yeah, probably would have been a very similar relationship to the boys where he is the mentor and confidant and the counterpoint to Moraine. But since he couldn't come, Tom takes that spot. And it does provide a bit of coloring to work. So we talked last episode about how there's a bit of disconnect between the reader and the characters and how they view Moraine. And it's just Tom actually does have some of that distrust and he instills some of that distrust into the boys where it's like, yeah, Moraine is dangerous. And he does also, it's a weird thing, though, because he does caution the boys about anything they could do that would put Moraine in danger. He gets mad at Nynaeve when she's threatening to expose Moraine to like, the White Cloaks or something in Barillon. And he does recommend that the boys keep secrets from her because he's afraid of the Mannequin Channel Aes Sedai dynamic. But other than that, he is still traveling with them and traveling with Moraine. And it's one of those, yeah, she's dangerous, but she's also dangerous to your enemies. And that's important. So I think one of the endearing things about Tom is he has the boys hang on to his harp, insisting they cannot play it. These boys don't, don't, don't owe anything to him. He, he's been taking care of them a little bit, and he's holding off this merger all while they escape the last we see him. You remember how in Indiana Jones, like his hat always turns up at the end? <laughs> yeah. It's like that. Like, hey, kids, you, you need to take this. That's the feeling I got in that scene is Indiana Jones handing the kids his hat and saying, like, keep, hang on to that until I can get it again. So tied to Tom and the Merdral, and is that in Whitebridge or Three Kings? I think it was in Whitebridge. Um, along the way, the party gets split. Tom, Rand, and Matt end up together after Shadow Logoth, and to escape the Trollocs and stuff who are following them, they find a ship at the river and jump on it. And it turns out the ship belongs to a captain named Bale Dumont. And Tom's trying to sweet talk them into, you know, playing for their supper and their passage type thing. And Bale's being very gruff and the boys cave in and pay them, uh, pay him. And they use the coins Moraine gave them, which causes Moraine to lose the tracking tie that she had on the boys. Ah, that's okay. Because when, uh, after they get separated, Moraine was going to go for Matt and Rand initially because... It was the you know, two of them traveling faster. We catch them first. We have a better chance of catching up a parent later. And then when the boys lost the coins, that's when they turn and try to go find parent instead. But Bale is interesting because he's a very gruff ship captain. He comes across as really threatening to Rand and Matt. And he's like, you know, they jump on a ship at night, they're being attacked by Trollocs. He's threatening to throw them overboard. And he's like charging them at an outrageous rate for the trip and stuff. And then after they finish the trip, you know, he gives most of the money back, but he doesn't give the exact same coins to reestablish the connection. He offers them a ride to keep going. And it turns out that the reason he was being so rough was because he was trying to get his crew to focus on, basically he was getting his crew something to focus on to help distract them from the fact that there were Trollocs and Merdral that had been chasing them. And that he, he thinks had really been hard. chasing him specifically because of... Yeah. Uh, yeah, he mentions that he um, the boys know that they're being chased. And Bale mentions that he'd been up in Saldea doing some trading. And he thinks that the Trollocs have been following him ever since. And it's actually like two different groups of bad guys chasing both of them separately. And so the group that hits them at Shadow Logoth was the group following the Emmons Field Party. But Bale just assumes that was a continuation of his issues and not part of the boys. 
but we don't figure out what's going on with that thread until later. Um, but oh yeah, as you were saying, with the the harp being sort of like Indiana Jones's hat, it is an iconic element of his. And when the boys finally reached Camelin, Tom had told them to go find the Queen's Blessing and Basil Gill, the innkeeper. And the fact that they have Tom's harp is what basically lets, is what basically convinces um, Basil that they're telling the truth and is willing to help them out because he and Tom go way back. Tom has a lot of contacts in a lot of places. Uh, he turns out to be pretty connected. Um, so yeah, you have Basil Gill, a innkeeper in Camelin who knows about Tom's backstory. He tells Rand a little bit about Tom and Morgay's and that that used to be a relationship that ended poorly with Tom basically escaping the headman, Zach's by uh, fleeing. Um, but Basil seems to be just a really up and up guy. And the true confirmation of that fact is that after having been repeatedly run out by panicking townsfolk and city folk, Loyal ends up at his inn and he greets him and gives him a place to stay. So since you were saying Loyal is one of your favorite characters, I'm going to let you talk about him some, because I like Loyal, but he is not in my top list. For me, Loyal was this huge creature that loved to read and write and talk about things and know about history. This is different than the kind of quiet that Perrin is, right? Perrin is quiet because he's being thoughtful. Um, if Loyal is just thoughtful all the time. Um, and I sort of identified with him reading all the time and talking about writing his book and uh, the affinity with nature. Um, he loves the groves as if they were his home. He just felt kind of reassuring, I guess. Um, yeah. Which I think is an interesting juxtaposition for when Rand first meets him, um, the only large inhuman creature they have seen so far have been Trollocs. And so his first reaction is, oh god, there's a Trolloc here, I'm in danger. Before he starts looking at him going, oh, this creature looks nothing like a Trolloc. I don't know how I made that mistake. I'm sorry. Yeah, the fact that you have this just kind, gentle, reassuring figure as a, you know, derogatory monster, just, it's a nice switch to be like, oh, hey, there are good things, not just evil things that are not people, yeah. not human. And they're still recognizably humanoid, right? Like, they're they are another intelligent race that is not elves. Although they have some elf-like qualities, depending on your flavor of elf, uh, they all, they're almost like an elf and an ent, like the midpoint of that spectrum. Yeah, very long-lived, very in touch with nature, and like the ents, uh, they take things much slower. And the singing, I, I thought the singing was actually a really nice touch. It's a, it's a peculiar fantasy ability that most people don't think about. It, it beats the hell out of whatever D&D druids do, mostly. Although I'm sure a D&D druid could do the same thing. I mean, D&D druids are generally considered one of the most overpowered classes in every single edition. Is that so? Oh, yeah. Uh, the, the druid is ridiculous. It, it's just broken. Anyway... I, I don't believe that Loyal's class would be druid in the least. Um, I think he would be a scholar if he had a class. <laughs> yeah. Or possibly uh, an adventurer. But 
yeah, Loyal gets introduced in Camelot in book one, joins the party because he he's the one who recognizes that the boys are Taviran, and he's the one who brings up that concept. And as a person who enjoys stories and is interested in seeing the world, he thinks that partnering up with the Taviran would be exciting. But he basically he's out in the world. He ran away from home too young because he's only ninety and not old enough to leave home on his own. Um, and that's a great touch. As far as Ogier are concerned, he's basically a teenager like the boys. And he's also looking for adventure. He doesn't want to admit to himself that he's looking for adventure, but that's why he joins up with Rand. He detects that all of the things he's been reading about will happen around these people. Yeah. And definitely a if you connect the dots of things that happen in the series, as we were saying earlier with Tom being in Emmons Field, when you know, the former court bard and lover of a queen being a traveling performer who shows up in this podunk town just so the boys need to be there, gives them, takes them under his wing, gives them the harp, sends them to the queen's blessing, where Basil Gill lets them in because they know Tom, where he meets Loyal, just in time for Loyal to deliver one of the prongs of the eye of the world being in danger. They get like three different stories, basically, that connect to being the eye of the world in danger. He provides one of them. And Ogier are connected to the ways, and Moraine brings him in as their guide to travel along the ways, because that is the only way they're going to be able to reach their destination quickly enough. So it's just this long chain of seemingly random coincidences stacking up to be what has to happen for the good guys to have a chance. What do you think of uh, Loyal? Uh, and he's definitely a neat aspect of the world building. You have these this whole race of creatures that people know about, but it's a legend that people are like, oh, these things actually exist? I thought they were just a story. And it ties into as the boys are experiencing more of the world, they're realizing that more and more of the stories are at least based in truth, which is one of the main themes of The Wheel of Time. Um, but no, he's, he's a very, very nice, compassionate character um and it's, it's the only reason he's not in like my top list of favorite characters is because i think some of the other characters have more interesting arcs and dynamics but if i had to choose a character to you know have in real life as a friend he would be probably close to the top and his name is loyal oh well, his name is loyal which is loyal is spell weird and that is intentionally uh, a hint as to who his character is he keeps calling rand an aielman he's like oh an aielman from the two rivers <laughs> And uh, despite Rand refusing, um, he maintains it. So the reason he calls Rand an Aiel is because Rand, well, the reason he calls Rand an Aielman is because he actually thinks Rand is an Aielman. And he's being confused as to why Rand is dressed the way he is and why he's carrying a sword. And he thinks that the Ogier has been out of touch with Aiel for too long. He, there's like changes he doesn't know about. And it, when once Rand is like, oh no, I'm not from there. Loyal apologizes and quit calling him, quits calling him an Aielman. But the fact that he looks like one, Loyal will point out to Rand, like, oh yeah, no, that's why people think you are is because you look like one, because he does. This is a land where average tall people are probably what, like five eight to five ten, and then you have these monstrous Aiel who get pretty tall. Yeah, and he's also a redhead. And most of the redheads, well, you have like the golden hair redhead, like the dirty blonde, red blonde of Camelin. It's like Elaine is a redhead and things. But a lot of the ailment are redheaded uh, because Jordan thought it'd be funny to put a bunch of gingers in the desert. Sigh. 
And as someone who uh, had hair best described as orange growing up, the desert was the last place I wanted to be because the sun sucks. So yeah, uh, there's also the builders. That, that's who the uh, Ogier were known as to humans uh, because they built most of their cities. And Ogier kind of stonework is known as better than any other stonework you can get. It lasts forever. Didn't the Ogier build Tarvalon? Yep. Uh, and originally, Jordan's plan was to make the Ogier uh, more like dwarves, I think. And they were always going to be the tall. They were pretty much the blend of dwarf and uh, ant before he made them a bit more elvish. But they kept the stoneworking aspect of the dwarves. So one of the things that I think happens with the Ogier is how legend splits and changes things. So the Ogier take on aspects of multiple different fantasy races. And it's one of those, oh, hey, are like legends of dwarves based on the Ogier builders? Whereas the legends of the elves are based off of the Ogier uh, singers or craftsmen. So, yeah, chicken and egg, everything's a wheel, everything circles back. The Ogier are also very big. It's said that they are half again as tall as, as much taller than a Trolloc as a Trolloc is to Rand. Yeah, so I think Trollocs are about eight feet tall and Ogier in the 10 foot range. That's huge. That can't fit into most buildings huge. <laughs> so about the ways. What are the ways? Didn't the, did the Ogier design them, or were they assisted by the Aya Sedai in making them happen? How did that all happen? So the idea is that you have the steading, which is where the Ogier live. And this, the ways are one of the first times we see how really expansive this series is going to get because they're basically an extra dimensional pocket that allows for time to pass differently and people to travel great distances and then pop back into reality much faster than they would have been able to otherwise. And the ways came about because during during the breaking in the Age of Legends, after the Age of Legends ended, during the breaking, when the men started going insane from channeling, a lot of the Ogier were trying to find their settings. And the settings were the the settings are where the Ogier live. And they are empty of the one power. If you go to a setting, you cannot touch the source. So male Aes Sedai, who were not yet mad, would seek shelter and refuge into the setting because that prevents them from touching the source and prevent them from doing any damage. But the issue being, if you're cut off from the one power, you feel a greater and greater urge for it until eventually you leave and re-enter the world. But as recompense and thanks for the shelter they're providing, some of the early male Aes Sedai built the because during the breaking the world was actually breaking the land masses were shifting things were getting moved everywhere so the male Aes Sedai who were taking refuge with the Ogier built the ways to connect the steading to each other to allow the Ogier to travel safely and stay in touch with each other because of the way gate would move with the steading if the land shifted or anything so it provided a provided safe passage and shelter and connectivity for the Ogier as thanks and then they gave them a Terran Grial that would let them grow more way gates as necessary. Because during the breaking, the Ogier developed the longing, where if they leave a setting for too long, uh, they will eventually die. And they have to like, visit a setting and be there for a while before they're able to leave again. So the way gates allowed them, they put up new way gates. They put up a way gate whenever they're in a new grove or doing new building work. So most of the major cities that Ogier worked on have a way gate. And then they could travel through the way gate back home 
to one of the setting. Which when um when Moraine and Loyal meet for the first time, Loyal is a bit hesitant about the Aes Sedai and he's a bit nervous. And Moraine assures him that she's a blue, not a red, because some of the reds well, some of the Aes Sedai blame the Ogier for belonging the breaking of the world because since they're giving shelter to Menuka Channel, the men would live longer, and then when they'd exit the setting, they would eventually go crazy. But the other Aes Sedai believe that if all the men had gone crazy at once, it would have destroyed everything. So there's a divide amongst the Aes Sedai and the ones who like the Ogier because they think the Ogier helped, and the ones who don't like the Ogier because they think the Ogier made everything worse. But with it being men who could channel after the breaking of the world, after the Dark One has put a taint on the source, since they made the ways the ways are tainted. And over the years, the ways have gotten darker and eventually Machin Shin, the Black Wind, has entered the ways. And they're not sure if it was always there, if it entered from somewhere else, or if it is a manifestation of the Dark One's taint on the power, or basically a giant mystery. And it's just this malevolent, soul-sucking force that when they're traveling the ways, you see has already killed a bunch of Merdral and Trollocs. And comes after them as well. And it's just this third party evil at this point. And the ways were supposed to be pretty much indestructible. So Lael is pretty surprised when he enters the ways and finds them decaying. Yeah. I was saying with it being the early instance of how just epic the scope of things are going to be and how weird some of it gets. Like it's the extraditional space that I had said, but it has unusual geometry and they're traveling up ramps and they have like little islands in the darkness. Oh, one of the main things about the ways is that it's just pitch black and they bring in light and the randoms are marking the, the light doesn't reach as far as it should. And it feels like the darkness is actively pressing in on them. And so it's just this unnatural thing. But as they're traveling, there are little islands and bridges that connect the islands and they're giant circles with a little slope to them. And they're convinced it's like, I think the island we just left is above us right now. Uh, that's weird. <laughs> You know, I think I might have missed that a little bit, but yeah, it does. It does <clears throat> mention that um, that the directions are not what they should be, or it seems confusing. Somebody has uh, also defaced the guideposts, yeah, which they find uh, with a. Some of them are pitted and just being eroded, even though there should be nothing to cause erosion. As you were saying, well, I was like, this should not be decaying. These are built and are have always been. Just indestructible and are starting to be destroyed. But they find Trolloc writing on some of the waystones. And that is how they figure out that the Trollocs managed to get into um, the two rivers and around Camelot in such numbers as that they've been using the waves as their transport. And, you know, they actually find Trollocs who are like partially melted into the stone of one of the islands. And are, you know, they look like they're all horribly, horribly disfigured and were in agony when they died because unlike the show the black wind does not whisper bad things at you it uh eats your soul and strips your flesh from your body and rejoices in its taste of your blood uh i remember seeing the black wind being quoted quoted somewhere and it just made me giggle a little bit i will say having listened to the audiobook for it uh it definitely reads better than it listens i, I think you have to have a cacophony of inhuman voices inside of your head for the text to sound as scary as it's supposed to. Yeah, there has to be some consequence to fear. So we don't see a whole lot from Min, right? Until uh, 
until we see her spill half the plot of the book in one paragraph. And then we don't really see her again until the book two. So with extra supporting characters that we meet in book one, when they're first out of the two rivers, they run into Berlon, which the two rivers people think is a city. And as they find out later, uh, is just an actually really, really small town. And Tom is trying not to laugh at them. Uh, he's like chuckling under his, into his mustache that he, you know, oh, this is a city, all right. Yeah, sure. Uh, but this is the first, one of the first stops that Maureen takes them to. And they run into an inn. They go to an inn and run into a girl called Min, who Maureen wanted to go talk to. And she meets up with Rand when Rand is trying to work up the nerve to go out into the city and kind of teases him a bit, catches him off guard and makes him very, very nervous. And she's asking him, you know, what trouble are you in? And all this. He's like, why am I? I'm not in trouble. Everything's fine. He's just trying to be completely, he's trying to follow Land's advice and not give anything away and doesn't realize that Min knows everything already. Uh, she knows that Moraine and Land are Moraine and Land, their Aes Sedai and Warder. And it turns out that she has the ability to see pieces of the pattern, which is why Moraine wanted to talk to her to get her read on things. Uh, because when, when Min looks at a person, she occasionally gets glimpses of the pattern in relationship to them. And going forward from the first book, I'm pretty sure every single thing she sees is something that's going to happen. But in the first book, it seems like some of her visions are related to things that have happened previously. Uh, I don't know if... I'll need to go back and check to see if there are any examples where people's past gets revealed to her. This here she has, when she's talking about what she saw for Lan, she's talking about the babe having the sword, um, broken crown. And it's basically how Lan was, Lan's from Alkir, which fell. And when he was a baby, his parents, knowing that they were all going to die, swore his oaths as a Malkiri for him and which set up his whole lineage. And she's seeing parts of that. She sees Tom, oh, around Tom, she sees a man who's juggling fire, but it's not him. And it turns out, oh, that's his nephew who could channel. So usually seeing the future is problematic. Maureen puts great stock in Min. She kind of, uh, she knows about this foretelling talent, which gives the user glimpses of the future. Everything that she sees about Lan and Tom get talked about and revealed in this book, basically, where, yeah, the Malkyrie was the land of the Seven Towers and... Well, seven lakes with the seven towers that's important to them um, and then you get one of the stranger things of the book the book series in my opinion is how much foretelling and future basically all the different ways that you have to tell the future in this series you have the prophecies that have been written down by seers from ages past or you have people who get modern foretellings which would become prophecies if they're written down you have later books dream walkers who get visions and dreams that tell them the future you have magic items that touch you see possible futures and then you have men who just sees elements of fate and she doesn't necessarily know what they mean but they're all metaphorical and sometimes when she knows the meaning it's like oh hey i see these two people with a um like a ring between them. Those two people are going to get married. And it's interesting because she says that what, when she knows what it means, it always comes to pass. Huh. And yeah, she then tells Rand stuff about every other character in the book. Except her. Yeah. So with Perrin, she sees a wolf. I wonder what that means. Yeah. Around Perrin, she sees a wolf, a broken crown, and trees flowering all around him. For Matt, she sees a red eagle, an eye on a balance scale, 
a dagger with a ruby, a horn, and a laughing face, and a bunch of other stuff she doesn't understand. Someone said that the laughing face uh, might be, uh, who is it, Balthamel? Because he has that mask on when they meet him. Maybe. I don't know if that one's been... I don't know what the conclusion... Might also be just, like, fate laughing at him. My thought with the laughing face was that it might be one of the Aelfin or Yolfin type stuff. But, oh yeah, and before she talked about that, she also mentions that um, she sees Egwene and that Egwene loves Rand, but that they're not going to end up together. Uh, so when she's talking to Rand originally with Egwene, uh, she's part of it in the Gleeman, all of you. You're in love with her. He stared at her. I can tell that even without seeing any images. She loves you too, but she's not for you or you for her. Not the way you both want. And at that point, they've already started to kind of focus less on their relationship with each other and more on everything that's going on around them. But it is, you know, as she's saying, they do care for each other. And they, at the time, they both thought they were going to get married. And they, to a degree, want that, as she's saying. Like, you won't be together as you both want. But, you know, they're both young. They're going to grow and change, do things. But I mean, at the time, they, they do care for each other, which I think it's lost in uh, later books to a degree. But it, men's fun. Men, she sees things, it causes her troubles because, you know, occasionally she'll get blamed for things happening because she sees it. You know, like, with a thing of like, oh, hey, these people are going to get married. Uh, he's currently married to someone else right now. You know, what does she know? Is she spreading rumors? Blah, 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 blah. Uh, thou shalt not suffer a witch to live type stuff. Yeah, her existence could be very dangerous if she was not protected by people. Yeah, and she does keep it under wraps. Like, the White Cloaks would kill her, thinking she's tied to the Aes Sedai. A couple of Aes Sedai know about her, and they keep it a secret. I think only the Blues might actually know about her, which is how Moraine knew that she existed, was through Aes Sedai contacts. And then she... Oh, but anyway, she, she's fun. She's like teasing Rand. She's smiling at him. And when she's telling him what she's seeing, she doesn't tell him what she sees about him and forces him to ask her, even though she knew it's what he was wanting to know. So she's, despite Rand freaking out and being unnerved, from her point of view, it's obvious that she's kind of mischievous. So one uh, of the things that I did get from her book one was uh, she has almost, a, she has a similar demeanor to Matt in in her mischievousness right or i don't i don't know uh, to a degree she is much she comes across much more fun loving and teasing and of the characters we've seen so far she is probably closest to matt in how she presents herself personality wise yeah people who hang around in bars <laughs> which she said she did work as a barmaid for a while but it didn't go well she prefers the stables where she does have to deal with uh patrons patrons and their bloody futures I mean, their bear lawn is uh, one of the main stopping points for a lot of miners. So it's a very rough and tumble group of guys, and she does not respond well to uh, unwanted advances. Ah, yes. And it's also the first woman they meet, other than Moraine, who's not from the Two Rivers. And it's just seeing how different she is from the Two Rivers people. When Rand sees her for the first time, she's the first woman with short hair. She's wearing trousers instead of dresses. And it, one of the things I've seen accused in early books is that she gives off some of the not like other girls vibe, which is the, you know, she defines herself against femininity instead of being part of her femininity. Uh, I think this is a misinterpretation of her character, but a common complaint I see for early book men. 
and it's kind of eye-opening for oh it kind of eye-opening for rand and it's the first hint for the readers that like oh hey the rest of the setting is not nearly as pastoral and nice as the two rivers was you get more of what the modern audience would expect when reading about a fantasy setting of the you know drunken barroom brawls and rough patrons and miners and you know, not everyone is just a homemaker she has the first meeting with Rand, and then when Nynaeve shows up, she talks to him again and basically is like, hey, Nynaeve's part of your group. <laughs> she needs to come with you. And you all are in more trouble now than you were because danger is closing in. Min is their asynchronously updated fortune-telling machine, <laughs> as opposed to these prophecies that have just been sitting around for ages. Yep. And then because Rand and Matt and Perrin or Tavirin, who just cause trouble wherever they go, uh, they accidentally get her place of employment burned to the ground, so she's left without a job. Speaking of people who will be out of a job when Tarman Gaiden is over, uh, we left off last episode talking about the Borderlanders and their relationship to Aes Sedai. Yeah, we just started really talking about the Shinarans, which is where they all end up after heading through the ways. Yeah, so Lan is famous among the Borderlanders. He's got a special name. He's known as the one who sort of has mastered the blight and comes back from it where most men will die. Um, and the Shinarans are pretty much the watchers on the wall from Game of Thrones. Maybe it's a definitely a, like, that's a really good analogy for it because you know, the watchers on the wall, the Night's Watch and stuff was put there in place of all of the actual, oh, in the point of the books, they've kind of forgotten what they're actually there for. And they're just thinking they need to stop the, the free folk north of the wall. But no, the Wall and the Night's Watch was set up to stop the White Walkers and the supernatural elements of the world from invading the rest of the world of men. And as we've gone through the series, you know, most people don't believe in Trollocs and Mergerall. They think they're myth or fairy tale. And even talking about them can get you in trouble in some places because the only people who talk about them are obviously evil. And then you get to the Borderlands and it's like, oh yeah, you're not allowed to wear a hood up on your when you're approaching the city because uh if you have your face exposed it's obviously you're not a murderall and i said i instead of being these feared potentially evil sorceresses running around are respected and welcomed because of how useful they are in fighting against the trollocs and the murderall and it is just it feels almost like a different series when you're in the borderlands and as you were saying lan has a reputation amongst them um, as the last Lord of Malkir, which was one of the Borderlands that fell, and the rest of the Borderlanders are, since it happened in Land's lifetime, a lot of the older Borderlanders were there when it fell. And the fact that they weren't able to help and that one of their sister nations was destroyed weighs heavily on them all. And Land has a lot of respect amongst the nobility of the Borderlands and amongst the general people. He's just kind of a solo guy and he just keeps going out there, right? It's like he's fighting for his kingdom. It's the one-man unwinnable war that he's going to fight, and he refuses to bring anyone else along into that because he knows it's futile. He knows it's going to end up with everyone dead, and he doesn't want that on his conscience. Which, if you go back and read New Spring, it gets into him when he was still doing his uh, pre-warder activities, and you learn more about you learn more about Mercury customs, you learn more about Land's history, and why he is the way he is and his viewpoint on his war. We meet a couple specific Borderlanders that will be important later. 
Um, we meet everybody's favorite Uno. Uh, yeah, they meet up in uh, Faldara, which is one of the uh, forts and cities in Shinar. They're brought in to meet Lord Algamar, who is the head of, uh, he's a noble in charge of this area. And he greets them warmly. He's trying to, he's telling Land and Moraine that they're under threat by a force of Trollocs and Merdral, and is trying to get Moraine and Land to join his troops as they go forth. And what they know is probably a suicide mission just to buy time for all civilians escape and for reinforcements to show up to be able to defend the rest of the borderlands. Uh, Uno is one of his main soldiers uh, who's just, he's a fun character. It, it's obvious Jordan had fun writing him. Uh, and Ingtar is one of the guards tasked to protect Moraine and Lan and the party as they ride out on their mission. And he's just really annoyed that he's not going to be there for the actual fight uh, because he's being tasked to decide to do that he doesn't understand because it's all top secret stuff. Generally portrayed to be pretty competent and missing the fight. As a whole, like the whole, every person you meet in the Borderlands comes across as aware of what's going on in the world, aware of the actual stakes, and willing and able to do their part. I can't wait to talk about uh, the Borderland more when we get to book two, because there is a lot of cool stuff about, like you said, it feels like a totally different setting. And from that setting, they head into the Blight, which is, again, like another complete thing where nature is just wrong and everything is evil and dangerous. What was it? It's something like uh, what happens if an entire environment is what happens when you leave all the food in your fridge with it off for a very long time? Yeah, everything is decayed but not dying. It's just constant state of overripeness and rot and life battling against itself. You know, fungal overgrowths and weird creatures that are just unreasonably deadly. It's like, okay, there's this stick insect that looks like a stick and is just fatal to humans. For no reason, there aren't humans around that are going to mess with it. It's just unnaturally evolved to be super hostile and poisonous to people kind of like australia right (laughs) it's like australia evolved towards evil (laughs) which there is an easter egg uh australia is the land of the madmen on the map it's never visited is that just like some horrifying society where male channelers have systematized being mad or something i think so Uh, i think it was a place where instead of isodai taking over and winning it was just men who could channel before they completely evolved into true insanity like before they while they were insane but not dead they would take charge and power and it was just this fractious land full of crazy people or you know australians (laughs) so yeah we are shown land being an actual badass when they go into the blight and uh he effectively plays reconnaissance ranger running around and killing stuff, coming back to get healed. Moraine says she's lighting signal fires for the half-men by uh, flinging fireballs around at the horrific blight creatures that are assaulting them. Which was mentioned a couple of times throughout the book. Uh, Merdral are able to detect the use of channeling to a degree. So it is not her... It's not the fire that's calling them. It is the fact that it's her using magic that is calling them and basically the more powerful magic she does the better sense they have of where exactly she is so it's kind of a catch-22 of 
the more you use to defend yourself, the more you need to defend yourself, which is one reason that Leanne is absolutely a necessity on this mission is because he is able to go out and deal with threats without the merge role being able to sense it. And Maureen says there's something wrong with the blight because usually the blight creatures uh, can sense somebody with the one power who is touching the true source and they will stay away from them. Yeah, whereas this time everything is attacking them and all the usual protections aren't working. And they're basically having to fight nonstop through it. And the only time they ever get any respite is when something more dangerous shows up and scares away everything else they were dealing with. And we get hints at stuff that is not seen and probably would kill the entire party if it showed up, like the worms and a pack of them. And Moraine lands like, I'm going to go deal with him. And Moraine's like, it's not even worth it. You would barely slow them down before they overran you. And he knows that. He was just trying to go out and buy a little bit of time for the party. And they're trying to make for the high passes because... Even those worms are scared of what's in the high passes. And it's just this ever-building threat of how dangerous the blight is and how much there that is just beyond this group's ability to handle. So it's a little fuzzy as to the mechanism of how they end up at the uh, Green Man's Eye of the World. So they mentioned the Eye of the World a few times earlier in the book. And as Rain says, she's been there before. And it shows up well, people find it in different spots generally past the point once you get past the high passes that they're talking about at this point somewhere beyond that people will find the eye of the world and the green man but never seemingly in the same spot and never more than once and moraine is banking on the fact that having multiple Tavira in with her and the importance of their mission being enough to allow them to find it, even though she's been there before. And as they're going and all hope is seeming lost, and you have Rand trying to channel, you know, do something to protect them. He's just not able to go and go to the void or do anything. And he's just asking and begging for help and something to do to help. And then as they're writing, the bike just stops and they're in a pleasant forested area flowering trees and grass and it's just calm and the green man shows up as you're saying a little bit fuzzy definitely accurate it could almost be read as rand accidentally channeled them there i was i read this pretty closely the other day and the kind of sensations that are occurring to rand as they go to the eye of the world are the same kind of sensations that he gets when he unconsciously channels what do you think of that I don't think he channeled them to the eye. I think he channeled and basically called the eye to them. So basically the same event, just semantically different. Instead of taking them there, he I don't know if he brought the eye to them or if he just put a signal out that the green man was able to bring the eye to them. Because it is, again, not necessarily tied truly to this dimension and plane. And it shifts its location to where it needs to be. As the green man said, it is where it is. Where it is is just potentially different in relationship to everything else. Uh, and he's surprised to see Moraine because as he said, like no one ever gets here twice. And so, yeah, the odds are Rand did something. Who knows what? Moraine's found a way to break the universe and she's just running around like Doctor Who. This existence of Loyal and Ogier, they regard humans as these sort of mayfly-like, very quick beings that never really get to learn anything or experience anything fully before they die. And I think this is an interesting trope in supernatural fiction, this 
sort of cosmic auntie or cosmic grandpa who is protecting you or cosmic father. Um, but seeing that embodied in something is something you usually only see with evil creatures with the enemy, like big evil robots. We don't expect like big, kind, benevolent robots, especially ones with uh, potentially mystical powers of growing trees with your voice and possibly interdimensional travel. So yeah, I think it struck me that both, like for for every evil that we are presented in this book, and I think maybe in the series in general, we are also presented with an interesting spin on a good side of something. Things seem to be in balance. I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> I, I think the bad definitely outweighs the good, but there is good out there. I guess the the good has more representation than just the uh, main characters. Yeah, but no, I mean there there are other creatures and things that are helping us. And the Green Man is, you know, as the Ogier were thought to be a legend, the Green Man is basically that. Once you acknowledge the Ogier are real, like he's just a step beyond uh, as far as how mythic of a figure he is. And yeah, again, this talking about the Green Man is interesting because he has a lot of spoiler stuff with him too. There's a whole section I think of, I need to get, put it together and basically just like put it into a document. So we can look at it like scene to scene. Um, it gives some massive hints of stuff that is to come. The Green Man is, it seems like kind of a force of nature personified. Um, coming from a Magic the Gathering background, he's just kind of life intensely concentrated into this tree-like being sort of a, an elemental of vitality. Yeah, as we find out, he is thousands of years old and he's supposed to be the last of his kind and basically it's as old as the ogier are to a person he is that to the ogier he refers to loyal and he referred to each other as tree brother it's definitely a tie on the nature aspect of these non-human creatures and the respect for nature and the juxtaposition of how deformed the nature of the blight is to how perfect his growth is uh, yeah is the benevolent aspect of nature or not benevolent because nature itself is you know kind of neutral but if you look at life versus death as life good death bad he represents the life aspect yeah i'm not sure if the death aspect is represented as much as bundled into the dark one i suppose there's the murderall and the but oh, it's, but those are more so different instances of corruption rather than decay yeah, it's it gets into some of the main conflict of the series from a philosophical stance of whether or not it is life and death at odds. You have light and dark, obviously at odds. You know, they pray to the light, they fear the dark one. You, but you see that a lot of things in the dark one side, the Trollocs breed rapidly. There are tons of them. The blight is just full of life, but it's all wrong. Uh, corrupted, as you had said. And so it is, you know, does the Dark One seek to end all life, or is it a different take on what life should be that he's after? And I think some of the conflict between the Green Man and his place versus the Blight represents that type of uh, conflict. Mm. The Dark One just wants to put his stank on everything, huh? It's unknown what he really wants. And that's one of the keys for having Dark Friends and Forsaken around. 
know, why would people choose to serve the dark one if he just wants to kill everything? They're, either they have their own reasons for supporting him that they think he's going to do what they want, or there is something else there that the good guys just don't know about. Because otherwise, it seems very, very short-sighted and stupid to serve the guy who uh, wants to kill everybody when you're, you know, a body. I think mostly the reason ends up being power, <laughs> but it's hard to say. I don't know if you can summarize it like that. And you know, people are swayed by the promise of power. A lot of them don't think that the last battle will happen in their lifetimes. Uh, and it's, you know, are they just joining these potentially, are they willing to sacrifice their morals for power? And for a lot of people, yes. And sometimes it's people doing it just on their own, and sometimes it's people doing it in the name of the Dark One. And that's just the trappings they put on to what they're doing. They don't necessarily believe it or want to until they start getting called up to answer their obligation part. And a lot of them are for joining us to talk about Robert Jordan's epic The Wheel of Time. Email your comments and questions to nerds at wheelthought.com or visit us on the web at wheelthought.com. Thoughts on the Wheel was reported, edited, and produced by David Arnold and Gene Dice. Intro music was Cinematic Time Lapse by Lexit Music, and outro music is Inspiring Cinematic Asia, also by Lexit Music. The Wheel of Time copyright is held from 1990 to present by the Bandersnatch Group Incorporated.